Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. Well, Aaron, thanks for hopping on. Um, could you just give us a brief bio and some of the big themes and uh, ideas you're interested in? Yeah. So um, I have uh, grown up in Bethesda, Maryland, next to Washington, D.C. my entire life. Right now, I'm a, a senior at Georgetown University. I'm majoring in economics and mathematics and minoring in philosophy. And um, I feel like I have a, a whole bunch of interests. So definitely interested in economics, um, politics, and public policy across like a really wide range of areas, you know, like everything from climate change, healthcare, science and technology policy, um, all, sort of like all of the above. Also really into effective altruism. I'm actually starting an effective altruism club at Georgetown University, which I'm super duper excited about, um, which is also going to be having its own podcast uh, uh, coming up shortly. Um, awesome. And uh, on the besides that, um, also really like rock climbing. Um, been a competitive nice. rock climber for a little while. Super cool. Well, we'll uh, we'll plug your show in the in the show notes and everything. Make sure everybody has a link to it. That's uh, oh, great. That's super exciting. Um, so you know, Aaron, actually, I found your your blog. Uh, you put a I think a link on the Slate Star Codex Reddit page, and um, you're talking about the topic is not the content. And I I really enjoyed this blog post. Um, uh, essentially, you know, you were talking about um entering the workforce and you've got this, this fresh perspective, right? Cause you know, you're about to graduate, you're, you're, um, you're an intern and um, can, can you talk about that post a little bit? I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So my, I, I have a sense that both for me and also for my peers, like we're in the process right now of like figuring out, um, you know, well, a couple of years ago, like what to major in, what to study at college, right. which is really like the first time we get to like really choose what to study for many yeah. of us. And uh, and now it's, we're up to like the point of literally applying for jobs and internships and sort of deciding what we kind of want to do with our lives. Um, and one thing I think that's sort of intuitive is uh, a, a way to go about this is to sort of ask yourself, you know, like, what are you interested in? Or what are you like thinking about or talking about or discussing? And then right. maybe think about like what ways uh, can you like apply that um, to your career? Um, and I actually think this is a little bit misguided because um, based on sort of my very brief experience, a lot of times like what I've been calling uh, like the topic. So like um, the topic area related to uh, what sort of like a, a job or a college major is about isn't actually that closely related um, to like the minute to minute, hour to hour work um, and sort of like content. Uh, and for those who can't see me, I'm doing like air quotes, um, content uh, of a job. Um, and so my basic, uh, I guess, recommendation is that we focus a little bit more on like the actual minute to minute uh, activities of what we're sort of good at and enjoy doing rather than thinking uh, more about like what sort of general, um, for lack of a better word, topics uh, do we want to relate our sort of um, our careers to? Yeah, I, I thought this was super wise and it, it's, uh, it's so often missed when people are thinking about choosing careers. It's, it's what are you actually doing on the day to day? Um, and, and do you enjoy that? And like, you know, what, what, what are the specific activities you're doing? A friend, um, 
he's an attorney. He clerked under Gorsuch. And, uh, you know, and, and he talks about this a lot. This one, And he's like, you know, you really need to think about like, there's the, you know, because you get a high status job where you just like the, what you're actually doing is just like incredibly boring or it doesn't align with your interest. Um, but like the topic is on point, you know, like, oh yes, like I love constitutional law. But then, you know, when you're actually doing the, the gig, it's like, I don't know, maybe you're just sitting there writing briefs or reading briefs and maybe you don't like reading briefs. And that would be pretty brutal. But I, I I really like it because I think most people just, you're absolutely right. They completely miss this fact that probably the most important thing you should be looking at is what are you actually doing? Are you interested in that? Not like the broad topic of whatever like the field is. Hmm. Yeah. Um. And I'll just like give you an example. So like take math, like math has always sort of been my thing a little bit. Like yeah. Um. for as long as I can remember. But like, I actually, I find like sort of pure math just like super duper boring. Like, um, but you know, when I'm actually, so like, I would never read like a nonfiction, nonfiction book, like a popular sort of nonfiction book about yeah. math, for example, I think I'd find that just like, like that awful, really but, um, terrible. yeah, when I'm like actually like sort of in doing a proof, um, I can like get really into it and actually can find that like quite enjoyable. Um, so yeah, I guess that just like goes to show how these two sort of things can kind of, uh, um, disconnect. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, are there any other observations you've seen being like fresh to the working world? Like I, you know, you're, you're at a really interesting place, right? I remember being there a couple of years ago where, you know, you're like, you, you enter the workforce and, and you've got this like narrow view into it, but you know, you've never been exposed to it. And like, there's weird things going on. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you've noticed that it, it, it's like, uh, that that's kind of, um, something that people that are kind of immersed in it, they can't see the, uh, they're like fish. They don't notice the water. If that makes sense. Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't really, I don't want to make too many uh, generalizations because my, you know, I've worked as like, I've been like a math tutor, uh, right, so I've worked at like so a climbing sad. gym, and right now I'm actually interning at the Department of the Interior. So like one thing that's been on my mind, maybe, um, this is like a very general point, but it's just that like, I think to outsiders, things just like seem more arbitrary than they do to people have been um, uh, sort of like imbued in the, the, the work for a while. And so just like, as an example, like something that we're doing uh, at the Department of the Interior, they'll be like, you know, it, one question is like, do you incorporate the social cost of greenhouse gases, you know, like the externalities related to carbon yeah. uh, when you're like tallying up, like what are the economic effects of X and Y policy? And like my initial, initial thought was like, yeah, like obviously, like, like why would you not do this? But like, that's not necessarily so obvious to, um, to the people who have been like sort of going about doing something one way or another this whole time. And I sort of would guess that this trend um, uh, would, would hold true more generally, although I'm definitely not not certain. So like, I think just like, maybe the value of just like asking sort of like a newbie in general, like, you know, what things don't seem so obvious or like maybe you think we, we should change might be like a valuable way uh, for like companies or organizations, the government, et cetera, to like, um, to sort of like knock themselves out of that um, sort of like default way of doing things. Yeah, I think this is a great idea. And perhaps this is why, uh consultants make so much money or else <laughs> or perhaps there's other reasons uh uh many things going on there um yeah i i think i i think that's super well put i had a thought that was a good thought too oh well oh, no. um okay yeah you know it's one of those things right uh we can come back to it if you want. absolutely absolutely um well so you're interested in effective altruism um and uh, oh i remember it now i right, before we skip before we skip I'll, I'll edit it magic of editing and and we'll fix that but um have you noticed i so the, the, the most shocking thing to me entering the workforce 
was um have you heard of Pornell's iron law of bureaucracy? I feel like maybe, but you're gonna have to remind me. Okay. So it, it goes something like um over time, the people in the organization that are loyal to the organization's mission are crowded out by the people that um whose primary goal is to like gain status within the organization mm. and rise to the top. Um and you see this with like older organizations, like, oh God, like no one's really trying to do the thing. They're all just trying to, you know, somehow like bureaucratically navigate. And like, I don't know. I, I think that was the most surprising thing to me. Have you ever noticed anything like this, you know, working and, and you know, if you don't want to talk about it, that's completely fine. Cause I'm sure you're still in it. So, but, but have you noticed that working in the federal government? Yeah. So I would actually, it definitely sounds like a, like a plausible theory. Um, I would, if anything, I've been actually surprised at how it's like, in, at least in my very limited personal experience, it's like, hasn't been, super true. I mean, obviously, like, I don't, I don't know a ton, like, I've been working at the DOI for a couple months, for example. Yeah. Um, but like, everybody that I see, at least, like, seems to be super duper, like, passionate about what they're actually doing. And actually, um, like, like I with know, the content, like, they're, yeah, they're actually yeah. like into it. That's, that's cool. Totally. Both the topic and the content, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, um, both of my parents are government lawyers, you know, there's a very yeah. government family living in DC. And I know that, like, they're, um, you know, they're both very, they're quite successful, but they're definitely passionate about like really helping, you know, the American consumer or, yeah. um, you know, uh, applying their, uh, creating like a, a effective regulations. So, you know, I do think that as a general, as of like a starting point, that's probably not a, not a bad guess, but I wouldn't necessarily underestimate the effects of like having a strong culture of, of, and like sort of just like social norms of people who like really want to be doing what they're doing. Like, like that definitely like has a force to play as well. Like I wouldn't be overly cynical about bureaucracies. Interesting. That's really interesting. That's cool. I, I, I like that. And is, is it, was your particular group, was it a, a, a newer group within DOI or is it been uh, around for a long time? Like, I think it, it's been around for long enough to have them ha, uh, have changed their name. Um, oh, wow. So, so it's gotta be a couple of years at least. Interesting. Well, that's, that's good to hear. It's good. It's, it's quite surprising. Um, I, I just want, I wonder about this in the, in the context of, um, just coming out of this, you know, this COVID world, right? And my favorite anecdote with about our response, you know, through the federal government is uh, the CDC in Atlanta. You know, they're bringing there's a 60 minutes piece um, a while back about they had a cruise ship. It's like maybe it was the Diamond Princess. I think it was another one. But you know, they loaded up the passengers onto an airplane. Everyone is super sick with COVID. All these elderly people, people are falling over on the falling over the flight. They land in Atlanta. It's where the CDC has their like you know special you know, unit deal with infections and uh, pathogens um, that, are, that are coming to the country. Everyone gets out of the airplane and they walk into the airport and they kind of look at everybody and they just go, ah, oh, just, just go right ahead. You know, people are like falling over, dying, you know, of COVID and they walk into the busiest airport in the U.S. Oh, so I like, yeah. I wonder like, like what is going on, right? And so perhaps it's just localized to certain parts of, you know, the federal government's apparatus and it's just not. Yeah, you know, I'm not the, I'm not, I'm no like expert on like the, the functionings of the federal government and bureaucracy and like the U.S. federal government is absolutely gigantic. So like it's I'm huge. sure there's a, a lot, lot of, people. of different, yeah. Um, you know, I think there is like a little bit of a conflict between what I was saying before about like um, sort of like defaults and precedents like, um taking precedent for lack of a better word and like the yeah. people who like genuinely really care about their jobs you know it's quite possible that like everybody who was involved in that decision like if they were to like have been the person in power like wouldn't have done that but for one reason or another like the protocols were just were just like just such that 
like the default thing to do was to like let them like go off the plane and like there's nobody like empowered enough to like really override that which is like not to excuse like the system as a whole like I think that's absolutely terrible um yeah but like maybe that goes a little ways toward explaining what was going on yeah exactly kind of the diffusion of responsibility it's quite interesting um moving on a little bit effective altruism uh i i know you're you're starting a club so you're you're uh, or you're in the club and you're starting a podcast around effective altruism through the club so i i know you're quite into the to the um to that topic uh how'd you first get introduced to it and um you know yeah like let's start there how'd you first get introduced to ea yes so as i said i've been a competitive rock climber for a while so back in high school we had this um event that me and my friends put on called the mile climb where we started we tried to climb a vertical mile inside so that's 132 40 foot routes over the course of a day um and this was a fundraiser um so for the first couple years we just chose like random charities based on what sounded good um but as one of the organizers at one point i came across uh give well and most of your audience probably knows what that is but just briefly they like evaluate charities for like how much they can do to like help people especially in in the developing world for example, by preventing malaria. Um, and they're like an integral sort of part of the effective altruism movement. And from there, I just started like learning more about it and was like pretty quickly sort of convinced that this is like a good way of like framing, you know, how to use your career, how to use your money to help people. So yeah, that's how I found out about it. Nice. That's cool. That's cool. And I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's super important just that like that, you know, there's objections to it. Absolutely. Effective altruism, um, utilitarianism in general, but I think, uh, generally we should try to give to charities that, you know, <laughs> at least spend the money on the thing they're trying to do and like, and try and think about what causes are more effective than others. I think that's a, it's a very good thing to do in general. Um, and, uh, something a lot of people miss, you know, there's like the feel good aspect of charity and that kind of, I think that overrides generally how people think about like, um, you know, what to give to. Mm, yeah um absolutely uh so, so you wrote uh, another piece and it was about uh how we treat children uh, so it, can you frame that a little bit I, I thought it was a really good piece um yeah 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 uh, of course so my piece was basically um about how we we as a society sort of t- adults in general at least in the united states i don't want to speak for the whole world just like don't treat children super well and and by that I mean like um we kind of do what I call like casual disrespect like quite often so I start with this opening example of how when I was a summer camp counselor I remember that like all the counselors um would sort of like lie to the kids the campers about their age uh, all the time um even though like I couldn't think of like a plausibly like compelling reason to do this um you know like like these were just like normal you know nine to 15 year olds or whatever yeah and they wanted to know like basic biographical information about like you know their counselors and they would ask you know how old are you but for some reason like there was just like a norm around like not saying your age and I don't think it was ever like an official rule um and just as a little bit more context you know like there's obviously things that you shouldn't tell like that we, right. like that should topics that should be off limits um for discussion I completely agree with that but like why did we have to lie so much, you know? Um, right. And so I think if I recall correctly, I was like one of the few counselors that just started sort of telling them, you know, like, yeah, I'm 16 years old. And part of this was because I looked like I was 13 or something at the time. So like, I wanted them to know that I was like, in fact, older than them. But then, yeah, so I think it sort of holds true more generally. Like, it's not that we should treat kids identically to adults. Like there are real substantive differences between kids and adults. I mean, especially kids of, you know, younger ages. But 
the fact of their youth or their age alone is it shouldn't be a sufficient reason uh, to treat them differently. So like in general, you know, if there's not a compelling reason to tell in to tell a lie or um, you know maybe a less loaded term is to say a untrue statement or something like that, um, then in general, just like our rule of thumb should be, you know, we shouldn't do that. Uh, also, you know, things like kind of like baby talking. Like I know I think it's like very tempting, sort of like natural even even if there's a kid like you know eight or ten years old who's like not like an infant to like talk to them in sort of like a weird mannerism. And it's kind of like, you know, why do we do that? I think we're just basically conveying, you know, like you don't really deserve to be treated like like a real sort of normal human being. Um, and I sort of do remember throughout my childhood wondering, you know, like why, like why am I being treated so differently? Like it's not like, is there any some like like magical thing that happens when I turn like 18 or 20? And I can tell you, like I'm 21 now, like no, like like there's nothing magical that happens when you turn 18 or 20 that like makes you officially an adult. So that's like the the basic story. Yeah, I, I thought I think that's uh, it's quite wise to to notice that, um, you know, I, I was at a party. My wife, she works works or she used to work in a psychology lab here at the University of North Carolina, and they had a party with the psychology department. And I went, and they they had a psychologist there from Duke, um, and he was a he's a big researcher in, in developmental psychology. And so I asked him, you know, like what do you understand about your field? I love this question. You know, what do you, what do you understand about your field? that lay people just like that, like everyone in your field knows, but lay people just like don't understand or would be surprised by. Um, and, and you find out some really interesting things. Anyway, he mentioned like the biggest thing is kids, they understand a ton of things, you know, a lot more than we give them credit for. And so like treating them like they're just like this other, like, and, and like you said, of course, like there's special cases where you like, you, there's topics should be off limits, but when you're talking to them, you know, they, they, you should, should not try to like, uh, I, I don't know. It's like really, it's a bizarre thing. Why do you think we, we treat them differently? Like they don't, um, like almost like they're fools in some sense. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this and one thing it just like, so I was thinking back to like, you know, what was the experience of being say like six, 10, 14, whatever, like, versus like, how did I come across? And like, when I like read something that I wrote when I was like eight, like, it just, like, obviously sounds, like, way less, like, mature, like, right. just, like, way less, like, coherent or whatever. So, like, maybe it's that kids are just, like, much worse at, like, um, communicating and expressing than their idea than their ideas than they are at actually, like, having their ideas, kind of. So, you know, if there's, like, an eight-year-old and he's, like, messing up the grammar, um, he's, like, you know, not conjugating verbs, like, correctly, like, it, I think it's tempting to maybe assume that that kind of, like, translates over into, like, the actual sort of, like, contents of his thought, for, like, lack of a better term, whereas, you know, maybe, maybe it just doesn't, like, maybe it's just that, like, kids are still learning, like, language, you know, it takes a while to be good at, like, eloquent writing, um, but, like, that doesn't necessarily reflect sort of what's going on underneath the surface, like, we should probably give them a little bit more credit for, like, the fundamental sort of, like, integrity and maturity of their ideas. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a thing where it would make sense that obviously they're not as good as at communicating their ideas because, you know, it takes a while to even get your own theory of mind for other people and, and understand and empathize with, with them. So, you know, transmitting ideas properly and in a good way, you know, it takes some time to get there. Um, So perhaps it's just this fallacy and trap adults fall into all the time. Um, Mm -hmm. Where where we just think they're all just like they're just completely stupid and don't understand anything yet. Um, 
And one more, one more little thing I'll mention is that uh, in this piece, I do cite this like Atlantic article, I forget what it's called, but basically about how, you know, this is not a human universal. Like there are other cultures that basically treat kids, you know, not obviously they don't treat like two-year-olds like they're 20-year-olds, like right. there's real differences there, but like basically just treat them a lot more normally. Like no excessive, one thing I call out is like excessive praise that like kids can obviously see through. I remember for <laughs> one, like, like when I was um, like, in like little league baseball, like being constantly complimented and like knowing that it was BS. <laughs> um, and so like, I'm sure I'm not like, I'm not like the, the only kid who, who realized that. So like there's other cultures that like, don't do this like constant praise, basically like don't like um, constantly throw like modified forms of attention on kids. So it's not something that like has to be, you know, we as a culture, I think could, could sort of move in the right direction. Yeah. And I think it's, it's important to do so, you know, a lot of my wife's research has been in, um, you know, like the language you use, the metacognitive language you use and teachers use and how that that's important and people develop their thinking. And if you completely just, you know, talk to someone like they're stupid, you know, it's like <laughs> maybe in some sense it's self-perpetuating. I don't know enough about it, but, um, it, it seems like it would be a good idea to avoid some of that. Um, so I'm curious, uh, you're interested in um, in drugs and psychopharmacology. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of my like disparate interests. That's right. Nice. Um, have you ever heard of a uh, zolpidem? The zolpidem, uh, zolpidem. Excuse my pronunciation, but the ambient effect. This is an aside, but you've heard the of the ambient, ambient effect. effect. I I feel like I've heard the ambient effect, like that phrase used. But once again, you're gonna have to remind me. Okay, you, you should check this out. I think you'll like this. So. Um, if you give uh, certain TBI patients, like so people that have su um, suffered traumatic brain injuries and, you know, they can't talk or there's like, uh, you know, su severe cognitive impairment. Uh, sometimes if you give them Ambien, you know, for about 30 minutes, they'll regain a lot of function. So, you know, they'll be able to talk and things like that. Anyway, there's like all these weird things with the brain. That, that's, that's what I'm trying to, uh, uh, the general sense I'm trying that's to give. It, it's yeah. really interesting, right? Um, all these weird effects. So, so how did you originally get interested? Was there like one moment or it's just like, this is an interesting topic. Don't really know where it came from. Came from. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say a single moment, but like one thing, it just like, I had a uh, family member who was um, struggling with an illness that um, they, uh, really did their research and thought that they needed their particular medication. And I've, I've talked with this person. They're okay with me mentioning that in the abstract. Um, and, um, and they sort of were up against, so, so they really did their uh, research basically into like, like the effects of this medication and sort of um, what types of um, effects it was going to have on their brain, et cetera. Yeah. And they really ran up against um, some issues like getting it prescribed. Like they couldn't really convince anyone um, to prescribe it. And so this got me really interested both in like sort of medicine and as an institution kind of, and then yeah. also just psychopharmacology in general, it, it was like a men, uh, mental health um, medication and, um, and just also sort of from a different lens, I just sort of intrinsically find it fascinating how, you know, drink a cup of coffee and you like, feel a little bit different, you know, um, not that since I've just turned 21, I can think I can say, you know, have a sip of beer and feel a little right. bit different. Um, and, you know, this is sort of like the raw experience of life, like, um, basically, like, like the, the way that we sort of conceptualize the world and feel is like controlled by like tiny little chemicals sort of coursing through my, our brains, I just sort of intrinsically find that very interesting. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And even just, you know, I think it was probably four months ago, you know, I, I made a big cup, cup, a uh, big pot of coffee, and I 
And, uh, you know, I was working on some like tasks that required me to really focus. And I ended up drinking, you know, like the entire pot over like a couple hours and like, man, like I feel like distinctly different. And like, I feel like this, and I kind of got, I drank so much caffeine, you know, I've got some euphoria going on. Right. And I was like, man, like it's incredible how chemical, like our experience is right. Like, you know, how weird it is that you can modify that. Like it it doesn't, I I don't know that perhaps that's just like a banal assumption, but it's like a banal thought, but. I think that I find that really interesting. Um, are, are, are there, you, you know, you mentioned not being able to, you know, this person, you know, they read all the literature, determined that uh, this drug would be beneficial or something like that. They try to get it prescribed, can't convince anybody to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we should have more lax um, laws around prescription drugs in the U.S.? Yeah, um, I do. Uh so uh, first of all, I'll just say like I'm not an absolutist in this sense. Like uh, there are definitely people who would say that like the government has absolutely no business regulating you know what people right. put in their bodies. Um, and I think that there certainly are certain substances that have like sufficient sort of externalities like that would like you know cause people to be very violent or um, do other things that would like impose burdens on like the rest of society that would warrant sort of government control. Yeah. Um, but just from a practical standpoint, like there's a lot of just like normal prescription drugs that I don't think the government should basically forbid people from taking either entirely or because or until they get um, doctor's approval. And, you know, before everybody sort of jumps on this is like very naive, I, I would, um, <laughs> uh, which maybe it is to be fair. Um, yeah. You know, we have to think about like how we're doing right now. So there's like a bunch of research that shows that like a lot of FDA approved drugs, just like aren't very effective. There's like, <laughs> all this like statistical like malfeasance that goes on like p hacking and stuff um by like pharmaceutical companies you know i think there's some studies that like uh cancer drugs like either don't extend life or extend life by an average of like you know seven days or something like that after paying like fifty thousand dollars yeah so like relative relative to that like should we be um preventing patients who like have done their research who think that like this is like uh you know x y and z x y or z is something that could really improve their lives from uh, taking the, the substance. And I, I think the answer is is no, mostly out of just sort of a basic concern for like, you know, um, autonomy and and justice, um, I guess. Yeah. No, it, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's super important. <laughs> yeah, and I agree, you know, like fentanyl, you know, maybe it should, you know, that, that should probably be illegal. We should probably regulate that. But there, there's a, you know, there's a whole class of, things that we we have that we just uh disallow and it also drives the price up right um mm. which which makes things worse i remember you know recently my dog got sick and he got some medication prescribed there's an is- issue with the prescription it took like three weeks to get the medication because the issue with the prescription and you know that's usda it's not even fda but you couldn't i couldn't walk in the store and just buy it you know it's sitting there and no one will give it to me and it's like this is for a dog this is not like there's no way you can abuse yeah. this you know it's like it, yeah it's just like some regulation like creep or something that's caused this to be or just the pharmacy lobby i'm not sure which um (laughs) but so i i guess i'm curious um you wrote you've written a couple of posts about uh different drugs and like uh, whether or not they should have been approved like whether or not they work do any of those stand out as like really interesting cases uh yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just mention the one that cut like the one that I wrote recently about, which is Adicanumab. So you guys, like, it's an obscure name, but like, this is the controversial Alzheimer's drug. Like if you Google like controversial Alzheimer's <laughs> drug, it'll pop up it'll with pop like, up a trillion first. articles. Um, nice. And this is like 
So the basics background is like um, a, a drug for Alzheimer's. Uh, basically, my impression is that it showed very little efficacy unless you look at a very specific subpopulation of patients uh, and the FDA approved it anyway. Um, uh, actually, recently they backtracked on that. So I don't actually know what the official status is right now. Um, uh, but uh, at, at first glance, I was like, wow, like this is pretty bad. This is like industry pressure, you know, winning. I mean, and, and also a little bit more sympathetically, you know, patients uh, like Alzheimer's advocacy groups, I think we're pushing for it as well, which is very understandable. You know, there are millions of people who are sort of pinning their hopes on, on this like one drug. Cause I know there've been a lot of attempts to develop Alzheimer's drugs and uh, without very much success. Uh, and so my sense was like, wow, like this is like basically government not working, right. um, you know, uh, pressure groups like affecting uh, regulation. But then after thinking about it, I was like, well, actually, no, like the FDA, you know, even though the FDA shouldn't have put their mark on it as safe and effective, like they were right not to block people from taking it. Like it should be, some people have different risk tolerances and Alzheimer's is a terrible disease. And uh, I don't, and it's, it's almost certainly not an abusable drug, you know, like from a recreational standpoint. Right. Um, and uh, so, so basically like it should be up to patients and their doctors to decide whether to take it. And the FDA was basically right not to stand in their, in their way, um, uh, in that sense. And the other thing I'll mention here is that I do think that, um, removing sort of the, uh, mandatory FDA approval. Um, so in, in sort of my dream world, let me take a step back for a second. In my dream world, the FDA would still like review drugs. They would still demand randomized clinical trials from drug companies. Um, but they wouldn't be in the business of once they receive those clinical trials, the, the data, et cetera, uh, blocking them from being sold. Um, so I do think that the current system of where the FDA basically uh, approves a drug as safe and effective kind of takes the pressure inappropriately off of like medicine and individual doctors to like critically evaluate the evidence. So like right now, like no, no one is, if you have a patient that's diagnosed with like X and there's a drug that's approved for X, I, I'm sort of guessing that a lot of times like the doctor maybe isn't under a huge amount of pressure to like critically evaluate whether X is in fact right for the patient. And so I do think that removing this sort of barrier might um, in a good way, like put a little bit more pressure back on both like doctor and institutional medicine and patient alike to like on an individual basis, sort of like um, clarify whether, you know, whether, whether we think this is a good, you know, cost benefit analysis worth taking. Um, so I do think that's maybe an unexpected effect that, that this might have. But again, this is this is just speculation. Got it. And I definitely think, I'm definitely with you. I think, I wonder if it would be wise just to lean into safety, you know, like FDA, like, you know, why don't you just focus on safety and efficacy? Like, you know, just cut that out and, and you know, maybe demand RCTs, but like not um, make the decision from there. It's a, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It, 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 it is interesting when you read like that, that post you put up, like, it's like, wow, you know, uh, what drugs do we have that, that actually work? You know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it's a short list, you know, antibiotics, they work. Vaccines, right. luckily. <laughs> yeah. Vaccines, you know, like a uh, short list. Um, prison sentences. Right. I tend to think, uh, I, I want to talk about the post a little bit. Do, do you think it's more important I, I, to, it, it does seem to me, consistency of punishment is much more important than like severity. Um, mm, and we probably yeah. worry too much about severity and like cranking it up. So you appear tough. Um, uh, what do you think about that? What, what do you think about prison sentencing here in the U S 
yeah, so I have sort of two distinct uh, views. Like one is like in total agreement, um, consistency, just like empiric, both like, both from like an intuitional perspective and right. like empirically, like I've, I've like looked, looked into it like a little bit. Um, uh, consistency is just like much better at deterring crime. So like if, I mean, just imagine that you were a hundred percent sure that if you were to steal a bike, you were going to go to jail. Like no one would steal a bike or like basically yeah. nobody would steal a bike. Yep. And obviously we can't get to a hundred percent, but right now, like the U S in general is actually like shockingly bad at like finding criminals. And like this sort of, I, I don't think necessarily accords with like some popular images of the U S as being like really tough on crime. Uh, and like, you know, inhumanely so, which I definitely think it is in some ways, but like, um, I do think that we should sort of, we should call out the fact that like many, I think except for murder, like a huge number of crimes uh, go unsolved. And just like empirically, this is really the thing that um, we could change to reduce crime. Cause you know, whatever you think about criminal justice issues, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, nobody in general, you know, crimes are in fact a bad thing. Like uh, we would want less of them, not more in general. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and yeah, and, and so making sure that people sort of know like have a higher confidence that if they do something that harms other people that something bad's going to happen hopefully not you know life ruining or awful um that definitely almost certainly would really reduce crime and the second thing which i know gets to the piece that, that you were mentioning is even like putting that aside i do i do think that prison sentences sort of as a whole are too long and you know i have a sort of technocratic brain for a lot of these posts that i write but like this one really came out of just like thinking about like wow so like i hear all the time not all the time but like occasionally i'll hear you know you know john goes to prison for 20 years you know derek goes to prison for 10 years or five years or even one year like wait a second like those are just like incredibly long periods of time like yeah. like 10 years like that's when i was like 11 years old like that seems like just like it, it's up like literally almost half my life like that's just yeah. like a huge amount of time like, how sure are we that, like, that's actually the appropriate type of sentence? Uh, and, like, especially in the context that, like, prison sentencing just empirically doesn't do much for deterring crime, um, and consistency is much more important. It just, like, as a whole, I just do think that prison sentences in general should be should be shifted shorter. Um, so I'd love to love to hear what, what you think about that and whether this is just, like, again, one of, like, very naive. Yeah, no, I, it makes tons of sense. And I also wonder, you know, like, I think people could tell the difference between one year and like going, you know, life in prison, but like, you know, like when you're conceptualizing of how bad something will be like the difference between five and 10 years, like, I, I don't feel like, you know, this enters in the calculus really. Right. Like, yeah, um, exactly. And, and so I wonder if that we, that's a, just this big argument for just, you know, reducing sentences in general, it'd be a lot cheaper as well, you know, all kinds of things. Um, you, you mentioned something I think that's interesting. Do you get the sense that, that America is simultaneously like over-policed and under-policed in the sense that, you know, we have a lot less cops on the beat than other countries do. Um, and it's, it's, it's a much more, it feels much more adversarial and, you know, the, you know, it's almost random. Like when the cops are there, you know, it gets violent a lot more. Like there, there are a lot of violent incidents involving police that don't involve killings. You know, it's like, uh, you know, they're beating a lot of people up and, and that's, that's really bad too. Um, do you get the sense that we could do better if we just had more cops, you know, perhaps compensate them better and, and actually encourage them to get out in the community more? Um, yeah. So this is probably going to be a little bit of an unpopular opinion in, in, in maybe some of my circles, but yeah, I, I, I'm in total agreement with that. I, uh, if you just like 
my impression of the literature is literally just having cops like stand on corners, just like looking around doing absolutely nothing. It's like very effective at preventing crime because you know, like people don't steal bikes and there's like a cop right there. Right. So, so, um, and then also there's like surveys that show that um, even people who like really think that uh, like police violence and aggressiveness is like a serious issue often do in fact want more police in their communities. So I do think that there's a lot of potential literally for just having you know, if we if there's a way to make um, police, you know, uh, uh, interact more appropriately and and be more well accepted by their communities, I do think there's a lot of, to be gained by literally having like cops literally just as like a, as eyes, um, sort of just like standing around in neighborhoods, like preventing crime that way, because it's like it's like a remarkably effective how um, how effective that is. Uh, but you know, all that said, I don't at all want to discount like the very real. Um, uh, you know, issues of, of police brutality. Um, I don't want to make any sort of like statistical claims or anything, but um, my general sense is that, you know, despite, you know, having fewer cops on the beat, as you said, uh, um, as other countries, um, there's a little bit of a culture of, um, as you said, um, ad an adversarial relationship between uh, the police uh, and the communities they're, you know, supposed to be protecting. And I, you know, there's been a lot of ink spilled on this topic. I'm not going to be the one yeah. to like solve it, um, unfortunately. Uh, but um, I think you're absolutely right that like we're sort of, there's no like one unidirectional way of fixing like the police issue uh, in America. Like things have to sort of go and go, go in both directions a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I remember, you know, Tyler Cowan, you know, Tyler Cowan? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, conversations with Tyler, he had some lady on from the University of Virginia and I hate to call her out, but she's one of these, she's like really important police uh, scholar. She's like one of the most cited, you know, people. And, and he kept asking her, you know, like what policy prescriptions do you have? And she's like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And, you know, to a certain extent, I do understand, like you don't want to like proclaim something if you're not sure, but you know, what I worry about is if all the scholars that are, that know everything are like, we don't know, we're not going to make any policy prescriptions. Then, you know, who's going to make the policy prescriptions? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. You know, it's like, how do we go anywhere then if you aren't going to have any ideas, right? Like you have to have some idea, you know, if you, if you are the best, you have to have some idea in some sense, but you just like don't want to commit. I don't know. It's a weird field. Um, but it's something very important to work on. Um, I hate to stick on police, but one thing I've noticed is uh, a weird thing about the police is it's super politically polarized in the sense that, you know, 90 plus percent of cops are, you know, red tribe in this country. And yeah. and it's, I wonder if it's kind of the same thing with police unions where 90 plus percent of the teachers, you know, they're blue tribe and you get all these weird and weird things going on when like, it's just like ultra concentrated on one side of the political spectrum. Do you think that plays into it at all? Yeah, I do. This gets a little bit back to what I was saying about just like culture in different, like different parts of the government. I think that actually can have a really strong effect. Um, you know, I haven't done like a recent like literature review on this, but uh, I think a little bit based on what I've like read and then also just sort of introspecting as to what it would be like to be a cop, you know, um, in a place, yeah, it, like amid say 90% fellow Trump supporters, for example, um, and, and what that would be like relative to uh, I, like I imagine like my peers at Georgetown all like turning into the police force and like what that would be like. And I just have right. a sense that those would be very different experiences. Um, you know, I don't know how tractable this issue is though. Like how, how do we change that? If, right. if it's a thing so, to be changed, I, I really don't know. Yeah. I, I think uh, this is politically infeasible, but I, I think if you doubled salaries for police officers, you know, you'd get a very different kind of like, you know, cause like, I don't know. Like I, I think about all my peers that went to this, like, uh, you know, 
flagship state university and like none of them are ever going to become a police officer it's just like not yeah. going to happen you know what i mean like and i just I, I wonder about weird effects like that where you know you just select for these certain you're selecting for something and then once it gets uh above a certain percentage of a certain type of people in there they're selecting for themselves and there's you know it just it, it keeps spiraling up um i think it's true for oh sorry go ahead no go ahead uh, i think it's true for like civil servants uh, to a large extent in general it's just like um uh like there are people who like in i mean police is like one issue where uh one sort of career that is particularly like polarizing in politically but like even other things um that maybe don't have that as much like i know teachers are pretty diverse politically uh like like the sal relatively low salaries um uh in many parts of the country just contribute to people sort of having to choose between uh taking you know a, a career that could pay them significantly more and doing something they want to do that's like very very much pro-social and like this is just not a choice we should be forcing on um right. at least in my opinion uh, onto people we could you know public defenders as well i think in general it would be a good use of our tax dollars to to increase the salaries of many many such categories of public servant yeah i think so and even even to the extent of you know if you have to make a trade-off with a certain amount of money it's like less highly paid having less people that are more highly paid maybe better trade-off in some cases um mm -hmm. I, i'm curious you know how does this do issues like this play into you know you're you're senior getting ready to graduate i'm sure you're thinking about career a lot you know you've been writing on it um you know how does this play into how, how you think about building a career and have you thought about that very much yeah um yes this is very this is very salient for me right now um I need to give more thought to it because unlike some of my peers, I don't have as much of a plan, uh, I think, as I really should. Um, so, I mean, you know, I, I think I'm very fortunate for being in a position where I get to, where I probably do have some options. Um, you know, I've been have extremely fortunate for being able to go to Georgetown University, for example. Uh, and um, I, I don't think I have anything super in, insightful to, to say on this matter, uh, except that Unfortunately, like for better or worse, there there is a, a trade-off uh, in certain respects between doing something that might seem more intrinsically interesting versus altruistic um, versus right. uh, remunerative. I think is, is the right word. Um, and yeah. um, you know, to some extent, this is this is in fact functional. Like, you know, this is how the economy works. Like there are some things that are less pleasant, and so we pay people more to do them. Right, like, exactly. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, it does. But like sometimes there can be like kind of a failure. I think where there might be yeah um, people like me who might. Uh, do things that are a little bit more on like the investment banky side of things um, and not for earning to give necessarily. So they don't just want to donate their money um, <laughs> instead of doing something that might be like more socially valuable and meaningful to them as well. That's yeah. It, it, it's a, it's a real trade-off. Um, I'm curious, you know, I'm sure you're aware of the $80,000, 80,000 hours um, career recommendations. Mm. You know, ha have you found that valuable? Um, oh, oh, tremendously. I think they're just, we'll just say 80,000hours.org is just a probably the single best resource at least that I've found for just thinking about nice. career um, planning in general. I mean, they are explicitly an effective altruism organization. Yeah. But even if you're not interested in that, um, a lot, a ton of the resources are just like about, you know, everything from, you know, interviewing and, you know, uh, how to plan a career and, you know, A, um, plan Bs and stuff like that. It's just incredibly valuable. And, you know, my personal take, I think, is that, like, I do sort of agree with them in general that 
you should probably start with like what are the pro uh, if you if you do want to make sort of a positive impact in the world yeah. you should really start with like what are the biggest problems in the world and then like how can you use your skills to right. solve them instead of thinking you know like how can i apply what i happen to want to do in some like in some way um that might yeah. that also happens to be beneficial so right. yeah I, i'm in very much agreement with them i think that's cool that's cool um let's see you ready for overrated underrated oh of course all right um so overrated or underrated we've talked about it a little bit but the fda or excuse me fda overrated underrated uh, i i yeah overrated um yeah so they're not doing a huge job of approving drugs that actually work and they're also sometimes like with the covid vaccines uh i'd like failing to approve drugs that or not letting people take drugs that would be like potentially life-saving um and i'm not sure how widespread this knowledge is in like american society so overrated nice uh the washington dc metro area overrated or underrated um yeah i'm really not the best person to ask because i've lived here my whole life so like i don't feel like i have enough of a yeah i'm not like i need like an outside perspective uh i guess i would yeah yeah um probably appropriately rated on average maybe underrated by like um well okay sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little tangent here uh so i would say from the government side congress probably overrated nothing ever happens we need to evolve a filibuster (laughs) bureaucracy probably underrated um that's where like a lot of like the rules decisions get made um and and yeah so that's one thing uh you know there's some aggressive drivers you know, 270s, maybe not in this place, <laughs> but you know, probably, probably appropriately rated on average. Nice. Like it. Um, the book subtract overrated, underrated. So I, I actually, last time I checked, uh, it had four stars on Amazon. So it's not, you know, not just good or bad, but overrated, underrated. Uh, so I'd say this is overrated. Um, I read the book. Um, it was when I read it, it was only published, um, uh, a few months. It, I only read it a few months after it was published. And it basically makes the case that sort of humans in general, like systematically neglect subtraction as like a way of making change. Um, and a part of it comes from like this author's like individual research, but then he sort of tries to connect it to like broader society and, tra- and you know, adding in historical anecdotes and evidence. And I really thought, thought the first part was pretty good. Um, like he does sort of make the case that like, at least, you know, in the lab, like it, the, the uh, not just in the lab actually, um, like at the individual level, at least humans really do systematically neglect subtracting. It can be anything from like trying to improve a golf course. Like people will add elements instead of subtract them. Like even when you remind people that they're able to subtract and like a huge number of sort of dimensions and topics. So he did make that case pretty convincingly. Um, But everything else was just a little bit weaker. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes sense. It's quite interesting. Uh, Minimum wage laws, overrated, underrated? Oh, uh, yeah, overrated, uh, way overrated. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I definitely am on the, at least economically uh, progressive side of things. Um, but I think that of all the ways to like, basically help poor and middle income people, um, this is not a particularly good way. Uh, basically, because even though there's plenty of research that right now, like the $7.25 to $15 minimum wages don't have a huge negative um, effect on employment, like we know basically for a fact, just from like common sense, that at some point, like it would have an effect on employment. So then the question becomes like, how far can we push it before people start being unemployed? But like, this is not a trade-off that we have to make. Like if you just have like a a negative negative income tax, which basically means giving money to people with low incomes, um, literally a negative tax, unemployment insurance, things like that, you know, universal basic income, 
if we're just giving people money, like we don't have to worry that we're going to be like secretly harming them by giving them money. Like there can be negative effects from this, but it's not going to be harming like the very people that we're directly helping. Uh, it, it, but like on the opposite side, like you could imagine a situation where we do like a $25 minimum wage and some people do in fact who uh, would otherwise be hired, you know, cannot find a job because of this. And in this case, we are like uh, harming the direct people we're trying to help. And so because of this, I just don't think it's a particularly good way of, of sort of like helping low and middle income people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Aaron, thanks for coming on. Do uh, you have any final thoughts and where can people find your your blog, your Substack? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, final thoughts. Well, first of all, uh, I don't think so. Just thank you so much. This was a blast. Um, had a lot of fun uh, doing this. And my blog, I think the official name is Aaron's blog. Very creative. And that's nice. Aaron Bergman, uh, dot Substack dot com and um hopefully uh we'll have our my um ea groups podcast feed up in the near future so maybe we'll stick that in the show notes um but yeah again uh, thank you so much definitely it was a lot of fun thanks for listening we'll be back next week with a new episode of narratives